This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Solving the Mystery Early. Crusaders vs. Santa. Late 50s Science Fiction Cinema. And Eve Klein. In Sunset City, there's always something fishy going on, and we're not talking tuna. Normally, good neighbors are suddenly stealing jewels, kidnapping kitties, and blackmailing the mayor. The magical kitties of Sunset City have their paws full. That's why they've formed the Cat Eyes Detective Agency. Because even though human detectives are pretty good at their jobs, sometimes it takes magic to uncover what's really going on in this town. Magical kitties save the day is the family favorite role-playing game for all ages. I am so excited about this, I have to break character. <laughs> you know I love cats and noir. Atlas Games adds mystery and intrigue to your game with the Kitty Noir hometown. Are there scritches? Do the cats get scritches? Kitty Noir has players explore a whole new detective series or throw in a mystery that any visiting kitty can uncover. Okay, but is it really noir? Kitty Noir takes its inspiration from classic film noir and crime movies from the 1930s to the 1950s and from Golden Age science fiction stories of time travel. Someone has frozen the city in time, inside a magical bubble, and they don't want anyone to know about it. And it's coming to Kickstarter on March 28th, you say? You said that, but you are correct. Hmm, are there any other new magical kitty treats I can add to my collection? Well, there's the new Game Master Kit, too. Yeah, it's got a sturdy GM screen, plus a handy poster of kitty breeds to help you pick your perfect kitty character. Don't you mean my perfect kitty character? Uh, if you keep that up, I won't mention the full-size poster map of Sunset City. Find Magical Kitties Noir on Kickstarter from March 28th to April 27th, 2023. Learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive. Welcome us once more into the gaming hut where we have a, uh, it looks like we've got a, an old country house plan, a butler. We got a butler mini thumping around. Robin, is it a mystery? I figured out that it was a mystery. Do I win? Do I win? Yes. So what we want to look at is if we need to worry as GMs and scenario writers, how important is it that the players discover the answer to the mystery in the big reveal scene? Is it so bad? Is it so terrible if they work things out a little bit ahead of time? And I think my phrasing may even be tipping my hand as to mm. what my answer is on this, because the investigative genre is not just the whodunit genre, and it's not just about surprise. And often it is as much a journey as about figuring out what's going on. Or or do you have a contrary thought? I mean, I think that the palm card in your summary was a little bit ahead of. I feel like if you introduce the situation, the mystery, and the players immediately figure it out, and they jump to the end before they've got all of the, you know, evidence or, or marination that you thought that they needed, that can be, I think, a problem, first of all, because they probably don't have any proof, but second of all, because 
you are then left with the, the big middle part of the adventure unplayed, which sort of puts a bad taste in your mouth. And the players, I think, might feel like the adventure was a little arbitrary because they walked in and, of course, it was this guy. And they might have sort of cheated themselves out of their own fun. But I think that that holds less and less and less the more of the adventure you've played out. And I personally love it if the players figure out the mystery two-thirds of the way in or even half of the way in. Because often they're deep enough in that they know that they have to go get proof or they have to, if it's a Cthulhu-type mystery, they have to still assemble the whatever it will be that will keep them maybe alive during the confrontation. I mean, that's the downside of figuring out a trail of Cthulhu mystery in Act 1 is you're going to get eaten. <laughs> yes, you just get to the ghouls faster. Right. And, and so, in many cases, the mystery is, do I really have to go down and face the ghouls? And you spend three acts doing that, at least you do with some of my players. But the larger mystery genre, I feel like, if the players don't have the sense within them that they can, in fact, figure things out ahead, that they are not merely waiting to be shown all the cards, that their deductive ability is kind of for naught, then that, I think, is more pernicious than a mystery they solve too fast. So I feel like the players need to be in control of their own character actions as much as possible. And if that means they solve the mystery and act early, or even half the story early, I generally, I, I'm happy with it. I, I go with it. I, I praise them and reward them and then point out the practical obstacles between this and a proper denouement, which might in fact be the ghoul tunnels or finding proof of their brilliant insight, right? Right. Because I think this is one of those things that uh, GMs are much more afraid of happening than ever really happens. Hmm. Because what do you have to do basically in order to short circuit the entire scenario and jump right to the end from the beginning while you uh, have to make a series of wild guesses. Yeah. And when they do that, first of all, that doesn't happen that often. Or because, just read the GM because they're super predictable. Right. Because generally, even if one player goes, well, obviously the carnival is a front for the insects from Shag Eye. Everyone else will go, well, what are you basing that on? Like any GM worth their salt is not going to have the clue in the very first scene that leads to the very end scene. That's not a mistake anybody's going to make. And so generally, if you have other players, they will talk the one player out of the lucky leap. Um, but as you suggest, the interesting thing about an investigative scenario is not just the revelation, but rather what do you do about that revelation once you've found it? And there are no gumshoe games, for example, where the final scene is just simply you unveil the identity of, of the murderer because <laughs> we haven't gotten around to cozy mysteries yet. And usually there's a moral dilemma as in Ashen Stars or there's uh, monsters to fight or in Mutant City Blues there's somebody to arrest. Sometimes when the players do go through the series of steps to the scene and solve the mystery, they want the end bit to be perfunctory, uh, which is a different issue entirely. Mm -hmm. But in general, you're much more likely to have the opposite problem of you think there's an easy series of clues, but the players manage to confuse themselves and to talk themselves into there being a much more complicated answer than they can possibly get to. So the thing that people don't worry about so much, which is that the players won't figure it out at all, is actually the bigger issue. So now that we've established that it's okay, it's actually good, I would argue, because the players get to feel clever. That's right, the whole point. Yeah. 
of investigative play. If you think you know what's going on, and then you have to prove it, and then you do prove it, you get to feel smart. Now, some players will complain about anything. So you'll yeah. get, you know, sometimes you'll have the same player go, well, we figured this out too easily. And then the next week, go, oh, this was too confusing. That's, you know, the nature of players and or humans. But in general, uh, the, the thing is, is that if they're proceeding efficiently, find ways to make them realize they're doing it and make them realize that they are, are smart about it. And the thing to do then is to find other ways to make the rest of the session big and interesting uh, after you've figured out uh, what the reveal is. So let, let's say that, you know, you get to that ideal situation that you've talked about where they're a little bit ahead of the mystery and they know what they need to do. What are your sort of go-tos in order to make sure that the rest of the session uh, not only fills the rest of the allotted time, but continues to be exciting to offer opportunities for for play other than just answering the, the main question. I mean, one of the things that I find with Cthulhu Mysteries, especially, is that, you know, in Fall of Delta Green most recently, is that the players, when they figure something out, are then consumed with tactics of, of how to bring it down. And I think that you can generalize from that to almost any sort of mystery. Like in a Mutant City Blues game, if you figured out that it's old uh, monoclops that killed all those people with the particle hole beams burned right through their faces, that's great, but you still have to track down monoclops and find him and fight him, ideally, in a super fight. But the n sort of knowledge that it's monoclops makes it a different kind of a game makes it a more sort of a Knights Black Agents hunt or targeting game. And I think that the vibe of that is different and it's very different in a game like Call of Cthulhu or Trail of Cthulhu, where you don't usually get to be the hunter. You're usually the, oh my gosh, what is that? Let's run away from it. But if you're thinking, we know that that's a Shoggoth in the bottom of that well, we've figured it out. They get a little bit of that, you know, shunned house Columbo vibe, if that ever were a blend, which I guess it is now, um, of figuring out what sort of things they might want to dump into the well ahead of having to go down. Yes, the old colonial steps. Yes, we, we heard it the first time you said it, Ken. Thank you so much. Um, but they get that, that opportunity to be proactive in a way that I think is, is a juicier play. I actually prefer that across the board in any game that if my players are proactive in doing things and trying to, you know, tear off bits of the scenery and hit each other with them, then if they're just sort of going through with a, like a dark ride and keeping their arms inside the boat at all times and ooing and awing. I mean, I like that too, but I really prefer players who are trying to manipulate the world around them because that is where my sweet spot as a GM comes because I then have to figure out, oh, they figured out the mystery, says Monoclops. How do I, you know, cover up my giant staring particle beam eye? How do I make it look like I didn't do it? Or how do I throw it off onto somebody else? Or how do I just get out of town in time? Uh, you know, that becomes a more challenging thing for me than just tour guiding the players from scene to scene. And here you'll see the, you know, Boy Scout troop that was all, you know, burned with a particle beam. And over here you'll see the mirror that uh, caught the backsplatter of the positrons, etc. And it's more fun for me if the if the players are driving uh, the story and have their own goals and want to grab stuff. Right. And so if you as a GM are wondering how to accomplish this in general, the thing to remember is that stories are a series of questions which then get answered, but the answers raise another question until you get to the end, in which case everything is finally resolved 
unless it's like a contemporary franchise movie, in which case there's <laughs> 15 minutes of nonsense advertising other movies that haven't come out yet. Um, so if they find out, you know, who the killer is and they find out a little earlier, A, make them feel smart, point out that, you know, obviously you've outdone any other sort of investigator who would realize this, but what new question does it present to know who the killer is? Well, first of all, there's how do we prove it, right? If there's a game where you are required to operate within a legal system, it's very common, in fact, in real crime investigations for the detectives to know pretty clearly from the outset who did it. And that's because in real life crimes, there's only a few motivations and (laughs) you look around for uh, who you think did it. Now that of course in real life also leads to wrongful convictions when the cops look at somebody and go, well, this is the obvious person and it's not them. The old touch of evil syndrome. Yeah. But what they then have to do is they have to assemble enough information to be able to show that to somebody else. And so what is the roadblock? What, uh, you know, you may have decided who did it, but how do you establish that to the satisfaction of, of the legal system of other people? Then there's the one you already mentioned. Well, you know who did it. How do we catch them? How do we find them? Uh, it's not a who done it, but a where are they? Or rather, you might have known where the creature is even before you know uh, for sure that they are the ones responsible for the rampage, uh, which is, I think, an interesting exercise, a scenario where it starts with you discovering a monster and then you're trying to figure out you know what is what is it up to what has it done should we risk going in and dealing with it or is it possibly some other monster but at any rate if you once you know where the monster is then the mystery can be well how do we stop it how do we kill it how do we banish it um and so there's always another mystery that you can add and on top of that you can even have you know once the thing is vanquished uh, what effect does it have in the community right that's this monster has left its toxic ichor in the groundwater for generations and is poisoning people, but they don't want to leave because they know that the government relocation program is going to rip them off. How do you solve that problem? And, you know, you can add thrills and and spills to that as well, but you can always throw another conundrum at people and the conundrum will always be suggested by whatever it is that was answered at that moment. And so I think that is something that people spend a lot of time worrying about, but is in fact one of the easier fixes in role-playing scenario uh, that you're either uh, adapting uh, from a written scenario or inventing on the fly. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is, you know, one of those, you know, what if the players got to the big battle too early in Champions questions? And I agree that does mess up your rhythm or your plan, but the big battle is the core activity. Similarly, in a gumshoe game, solving the mystery is the core activity, and the fact that the players have gotten to it early it shows that they're engaged and good. And generally, if players are being engaged and good, you reward that in my personal experience, or you try to. And again, yeah, you can, you know, pose other questions. You can figure out knock on effects. Yes, we've, we've got monoclops, but who repaired his visor this time? He, you know, it was taken away last time because he was a horrible murderer. And how did he get his new visor? And maybe that's the thing that you can improv for the rest of the four hours or whatever, if you need to figure out something to occupy the time of your actual players in actual Monday night or whatever, right? Right. Well, we haven't answered this question too quickly. We've answered it in exactly the allotted time, as is not our wont. <laughs> so <laughs> not at all. Let us, let us take advantage of that and head through this beautiful fine-tooled commercial to another segment on the other side of it.
The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe 1 to 1 system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The History Hut takes us back, way back, into several historical periods. It takes us into the classical period today and also uh, into the... Are we saying medieval these days? What are we I saying? I say medieval, Robin. Yeah, let's say medieval. So we got two exciting time periods and lots of magical powers of a shape-shifting, identity-altering, mystical, mythical being who also has an actual corpse. So let's get to the question as posed by beloved Patreon backer Mark D. Rinna, who asks, Why did Black Ops Crusaders raid the tomb of Santa Claus in Myra? And of course, by Santa Claus, we mean St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas of Myra, because as we will discover later, there's several St. Nicholases, and due to uh, the aforementioned mythical transference effect, uh, sometimes they get each other's powers. Yeah, that's how it works. And I think to answer Mark D. Rinna's question, it's the same reason Willie Sutton robbed banks, because that's where the money was. But before we get to that, let's talk briefly about St. Nicholas. He was the Bishop of Myra. Myra is a town in Lycia in Anatolia. So if you think of uh, the southern coast of Turkey, it's the westernmost of the two bumps that his town is on. In history, he barely appears... But people who say things about saints say that the legend that he slapped an Arian at the Council of Nicaea implies that he was a real person because no right. one would say something so indecorous about a saint if it weren't true. Right. Now, they only said that a thousand years later. But well, not a thousand years later. They said it like 400 years later, but still. Right. And I guess for, for the benefit of the listener, you now have to quickly explain who Arians are and what the Council of Nicaea was. The Council of Nicaea is where Constantine, having made Christianity legal, suddenly realizes that he has to spend the rest of his reign dealing with Christians. <laughs> and, and their doctrinal disputes. And their doctrinal disputes, making him referee them. And he says, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm still a pagan, personally. So maybe you should figure it out. I'm going to make you all get together in Nicaea and don't leave the building until you've figured out what Christianity is so that I can have made it legal. Thank you so much. The two big factions were the Arian faction, named for Arius, who preached that Christ's human and divine natures were entirely separate. And the what's now the Catholic faction, the Orthodox faction, that said, oh, they were not. They are part of the same trinity. And uh, Arius argued his case and lost at the Council of Nicaea, possibly thanks to a well-timed slap from St. Nicholas of Myra. Right. Which is one of the less magical things right. that he is said to have done. <laughs> and, and therefore, one of the more likely to be historical. But he also... <laughs> 
he gets his rep of being a gift giving guy from having given money to poor girls for their dowries. Right. And in the legend, he drops a gold bag through the window. Mm-hmm. These three girls who don't have dowries and otherwise will face horrible doom. Mm-hmm. What a night. So you've, you've got the beginnings of the going down chimneys uh, with loot. Right. He destroys the temple of Artemis in the area. Uh, he bilocates at one point, which is nice. This will come in handy when you need lots of relics to, yep. to pass around. And he saves sailors because Myra is on a particularly rocky and terrible coast. So he, you know, sort of magically appeared to them and said, don't sail on this terrible rocky coast. It's a bad idea. Uh, later stories are maybe a little more added. He's, he's an investigator, Ken. He's, yep. He solves some cases. Yes. He senses that a butcher has pickled three children, not only correctly accuses the butcher of this crime and, and elicits a confession from him, but then resurrects them, which is pretty serious heavy-duty miracle working. Right. And uh, this, by the way, is how he becomes a patron saint of children, is because people see this drawing and say, oh, he must have been the patron saint of children instead of the patron saint of, you know, detectives. Right. And and is also associated with pickles and something is everybody needs something pasted. You know, if, if you're the pickle makers, you got to look for a, a pickle story. Right. And <laughs> leave out the part where we pickled children. Yeah, first. He, that that gets left. But St. Lawrence is the patron saint of grilling. So it, yeah. life is just bad if you're a saint, I guess. Right. Another case that is attributed to him, but also he might have stolen through mythic resonance from a neo-Pythagorean philosopher is having proved that a juror has accepted bribes just before three men are put to death. So that's a real sort of Perry Mason moment there for that. Mm -hmm. He appears to Constantine in a dream to warn him that three generals that Constantine plans to execute are innocent. So the original Saint Nick definitely uh, had serious detective powers, which I guess you need to figure out who's been naughty and nice, right? Right, that's yeah. Just, that's that's just, what that story is. part of assembling that list. Is, yeah. Excuse me, Timmy, just uh, one more thing. Yeah. You said you've been nice, but uh, we asked around. He also is attributed to a story where he chops down cypress trees that have been possessed by demons, which might be a reflection of that pagan temple destruction idea that might be mm-hmm. a reference to a pagan shrine. That might be a conflation with a different Nicholas, Nicholas of Sion, but... Hey, Mythic Drift, and also Nicholas Sion is known to have visited Nicholas of Myra's tomb, and so perhaps powers and or mythic events could have been transmitted between the two of them at that time, uh, because uh, Nicholas of Myra's emblem is a cypress. And while we're listing things he's patrons of, not only sailors, which you already mentioned, but archers, repentant thieves, you got to slip the repentant in there, brewers, pawnbrokers, merchants, uh, which will come in again when merchants come and steal his body, and children, as we mentioned, and unmarried people. So that's like half the F-20 characters right, right there. Yeah, he's, he's he becomes very, very popular, which is maybe not the absolute slam dunk that he was real. St. Christopher also became very popular, and he, as I never tired of reminding people in Catholic school, had a dog head. But, you know, at any rate, he does have a fairly thriving cult, and uh, he was possibly buried on the island of Jamil, where he was born, uh, or Camel, as it was known in the ancient times, because it had two humps. It was near his birthplace, but islands became a bad place to be when the Arab navies started to besiege the Byzantine coast, so they moved his body to Myra, 
which is now the town of Demre, 25 miles away where he was bishop anyway. And then they had a church built for him there already, but they just popped his body into a sarcophagus because the body weeps a clear perfumed fluid on his feast day, December 6th, called manna or myrrh. And this, obviously, you would sell to people or people would come by and say, I need some sacred myrrh to anoint my dying mom you you can't say merchandise without myrrh right exactly and they would say well obviously the church of saint nicholas is happy to provide you myrrh now how happy are you that your mom's not going to die and please press down hard you're making three copies so the body of saint nicholas became a pleasant little money maker for the church in myra which became known to italian traders in the area so in 1087 Three ships from Bari, the town of Bari, which already had a little cult of St. Nicholas already, said, you know what? If we had the body of St. Nicholas, we would be able to cash in on all that solid gold goodies. And also, we'd be saving the town from the Turks who have just invaded it. And so we'd keep that sacred holy relics safe from bad Turks. Yes, we're not thieves, we're crusaders. Exactly. Well, it's before the first crusade, so they're pre-enthusiastic crusaders, but what they are, are people with an eye to the main chance who also don't like the Ottomans or the Seljuks, I guess, at this time. So, fair enough. Also, they're importing Antioch and they hear the Venetians planning the same thing. So, hey, it's more of a matter of, we can't let Venice get the body of St. Nicholas. That's in the zeitgeist. That's against the, the pride of Bari. So, they run down to their ships and they sail away and God guides their sails as is explicitly described in the chronicle of, of the body's translation, as it is called, uh, a, a guy named Orderic Vitalis, who is a very reliable history of uh, the Norman kingdoms, goes into it in some detail from whence I've gained my details. So anyway, three ships from Bari sail to Myra. They leave some men on the ships, 47 men, uh, including two priests, fathers Lupus and Grimwald, which I love, <laughs> show up and they say, I assume you know how dangerous this sarcophagus is now with all these Seljuk Turks and the Orthodox monks say, we really haven't noticed any danger. And aren't you heretics? And uh, they said, well, here's how dangerous it is. There's a hundred pounds of gold in it for you. If you just wander away for a bit. And they said, well, we can't sell you the body of St. Nicholas. We sell the myrrh. It, it's basic business. Don't aren't the, We thought you were merchants. And they said, well, we tried it the easy way. So they uh, beat up the monks or they sort of lured them off in a distraction, a diversion. They said, forget about the body. Oh, look over there. Isn't that, you know, an etching? Right. And, and, and lesson number one, if a bunch of shady merchants show up, try to buy the body of your saint from you. Don't be diverted. Don't be diverted. Yeah. Look out for plan B. Keep an eye on the on the case. So Lupus and Grimwald set up a holy prayer that even Orderick says that they falter in their prayer because they may have thought, what are we doing? But don't worry. There's a young guy with a crowbar named Matthias who tears up the floor. And sure enough, there's the sarcophagus of St. Nicholas. They smash open the, the head of it. They reach in and Matthias actually climbs into the sarcophagus with the body and hands out pieces of it to everyone. He gets myrrh all over himself. They don't have anything to carry the body away in because they thought they could just, you know, buy the sarcophagus. So they have to wrap it up in Father Lupus's shirt. And then they run away down to their boats, pursued by the angry citizens of Myra. And they get away. 
And then God stops the boat dead off the Campbell Island. And everyone has to sort of open up their shirts and give all the pieces of St. Nicholas that they'd hit out back so that St. Nicholas is back intact before St. Nicholas will allow the boat to proceed to Bari. But it does get to Bari on the 9th of May. One assumes there is then a uh, who gets to keep the body. There's a big argument about that. Right. And the body is already established that it has opinions. Yeah, right. But eventually they turn it over to a Benedictine abbot named Elias, who is then put in charge of building a brand new church called St. Nicholas Basilica, which is dedicated in 1089 by Pope Urban II himself. Right. And so he's cool with the relocation. Well, he's very cool with the relocation. First of all, they've already declared the Orthodox monks heretics. So you can't let heretics have a cool saint like St. Nicholas. Also, the people of Bari are very into St. Nicholas. And you can see Nicholas as a Christian name just blows up after this uh, translation, this heist. And then the Venetians, not to be outdone, sweep by in 1099 and scrape out the inside of the sarcophagus with Lots of little bits of bone that Matthias, in his distraction and confusion, did not take away. So, the the Venetians have their own St. Nicholas, St. Nicholas of the Lido Church, that has relics. And they've tested those relics later, and they're identical. I don't know. I don't think they did genetic testing, but they're as identical as they can figure out with the Bari relics. So, they're from a male skeleton of roughly the 5th century or 4th century. Because the the skeleton of St. Nicholas at one point was turned over for forensic examination. And so yeah. they found, for example, that uh, it has a broken nose. So at mm-hmm. some point, whether it was the Council of Nicaea or somewhere else, or the likelier story is that while he was being persecuted under Diocletian, is that yeah. uh, he had his nose broken. Now, because it is medieval and because it is my heart, I do have to tell the Irish version of this story, which is basically different, but also the same. This takes place during the Second Crusade when two Norman knights stole his body from Myra and took it to Kilkenny. And you can go to the town of Thomastown and ask around and they'll say it's on private land. You can't go there. But if you go there anyway, they have the tomb of St. Nicholas right there, but there you would be not just controverting, you know, science, but you'd be controverting the given word of orderic vitalis. And I don't feel like we want to do that, but I did for completion. Right, but we have established that St. Nick, by locate. So yeah, he does. At least two bodies. Right. And it turns out there are lots of pieces that people did keep out and then they sold to various monasteries around Europe. So near Nancy in France, they've now got a St. Nicholas town that's named because they stole his arm. There's another guy that snuck his arm out and had to sell the silver that it was wrapped in in order to stay on the run. And he was brought down by the cops uh, at the border which sounds very cool, but the relic trade, uh, some of it, you know, done with the connivance of the church at Bari, some of it done by other sub relic thieves does spread Nicholas's bits across Europe. And then in 2009, the Turkish government has requested the return of those relics. And I don't think that's going anywhere, but since they didn't get them back, they then said, Oh, we've done a ground penetrating radar search and we found a sealed crypt underneath St. Nicholas Church in Demeray, and we think you stole the wrong body, Bari. You stole just some guy who was in a jar full of myrrh, not proper St. Nicholas. And so maybe real St. Nicholas or his trilocated body is still down there underneath the church in Demeray, but they can't, you know, just bust up the floor because they're not Matthias. They're, you know, decent archaeology people. And so we are left with the wonderful question of 
where isn't the body of St. Nicholas? And I guess the North Pole should also be thrown into the mix. Right. So turning this into a game scenario, well, the body of St. Nicholas is the treasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> End of scenario building. Yeah. If F20 settings were really ever set on Earth in, in the medieval era, saints relics, bits of bone and uh, bits of the implements that were used to kill the saints would be among the most uh, potent treasures and not just having a cash value. Uh, which we've established they have, yep. but also having different magical powers. So the various bits of uh, St. Nicholas, we've already established that uh, he's the patron saint of archers. So uh, right there, it gives you a plus two a bonus to missile weapons and uh, uh, repentant thieves. I'm sure repentant thieves doesn't mean you stop thieving. It just means you start your... You feel sorry about it. Yeah, you, you have one of the good alignments and then you go and steal more saints and give right. them to the people who really deserve them, not the heretics on the other side of the river. You become a cool saint, a cool thief like Simon Templar. You only steal from bad people. Yeah. And what do they call him? The saint. Exactly. Close. Right. Problem solved. So now that we've solved that problem, I think it's uh, time for us to get in our sleigh, turn on our lead reindeer's nose, lead our way through the foggy skies to whatever lies on the other side of this commercial. The best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's tomb unrated by joining in with such jolly old Patreon backers as... Louis Sylvester! Luke Silburn! Matthew Preston! Michael Bowman! And Alexander Shendy! The whir of the projector, the smell of the popcorn, and the scratch of whatever that is on the floor follows us to the center seat, center aisle of the Cinema Hut, where we once more settle in for the science fiction cinema essentials. And Robin, dare we think we're going to get out of the 1950s today? I think we we might very well. We might, could, maybe. Because we've got four full-on, no-apology, straight-up essentials, and then uh, that uh, gets us done in the 50s pretty much after yep. some, some footnotes. So we'll see how far we get. We'll see yeah. how far we get. So speaking of absolute classic like if we had to boil the list down to like 10 or 8 or 5 mm-hmm. invasion of the body snatchers from 1956 by don siegel would be on it it is uh been 
uh, copied and riffed upon and probably turned into a scenario by you, the <laughs> listener. It is, of course, the quintessential story of uh, paranoia and doppelganger fear in which uh, members of a small community realize that copies of them are being made by the plant-like invaders from another world. Uh, their bodies are copied in pods down in the basement and uh, your friends, your neighbors, the authorities, you have to fear them because they might have been turned into somebody else. So it's a masterpiece of paranoia. It is written in such a way that you can project your own paranoia onto it. So you can read it from the left as about being about the fear of authoritarianism and conformity. You can read it from the right as being about the uh, threat of uh, Soviet infiltrators. And it is incredibly well executed. It has a noirish tone to it because the director Don Siegel uh, directed a bunch of noirs and other crime films as well as westerns. And it would be any other director's most famous film, most influential film, right? except Don Siegel also directed an even more influential film later, Dirty Harry. Right. As well as uh, some absolute banger westerns. Don Siegel, one of the sort of journeyman directors, although I think he's got more of a style to him, uh, a little more down the road than our previous example, Robert Weiss. Yeah. The, the only reason he's not higher up in the Pantheon is that he was still working when Kaya de Cinema was assembling its first auteur list. Right. And, and, and also because he was unapologetically right-wing, which I think maybe made the French avant-garde not like you as much. But anyway... Well, except for John Ford. Yeah, well, yeah, but you can't not we like digress. John Ford. We do Talk digress. Talk about Invasion of the Wadi Satchers, Ken. Now going to be the John Ford hour. But the larger point we were making is, and one of the keys to this movie is that Don Siegel takes it absolutely seriously. Everyone else takes it absolutely seriously. There's no camp in it. And I think that's what cripples the 70s remake is that they, on their one hand, want to do a scary, scary movie. But on the other hand, they want to lean into the ridiculous camp uh, possibilities of it. And so uh, I think that's why the third one in the series, wildly, is is the best uh, of the remakes. That said, the original is far and away the best one. Kevin McCarthy brings every ounce of his 50s noir hero sensibility to the part. It is a perfect small town under threat. This By now, we've seen this happen over and over, even in 50s science fiction, Invaders from Mars, etc. But we see it, again, perfectly. It's based on a banger novel by Jack Finney. I should mention it. It does a really good job of taking the core of that novel and putting it on the screen. And it, uh, like you said, Robin, the, the noir feel, you know, goes into the lighting and it goes into the editing. It's just, you know, if it were, you know, some sort of secret murder cult instead of aliens, it would be an all-time classic noir as well. It's just a, uh, a remarkable movie. And then it also, not just the immediate remakes, but it then feeds into lots of other films, including remakes of other films. I don't think that John Carpenter's The Thing would have been the same without Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? Right. And most long-running genre science fiction shows somehow get around to doing a an, an homage to it. It's just one of those things that becomes a, a staple of the genre with it. So it, it develops the trappings of science fiction as well as itself being a classic science fiction film. Uh, Jack Arnold. Jack Arnold <laughs> is definitely a journeyman director. A recurring name on our list. Yes. But in terms of, you know, science fiction is definitely a key science fiction auteur. And The Incredible Shrinking Man, which is what it says based on a Richard Matheson novel. So another example of literary science fiction feeding into cinema. And 
a man is, is affected by a, a mysterious force that begins to reduce him in size. And it is a great, I can't think of an earlier example of another genre staple, which you see all the time in Doctor Who, which is taking something mundane and having a radical perspective shift that suddenly makes something every day through a science fiction conceit into a terror. And that's like the man's own home and his house cat and the spider in his house all become objects of terror. And as he begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. I think that the novel was a novel that Matheson wrote based on the fact that he was going to sell it to universal as a movie. And so he basically went away, he wrote the novel and then he wrote the first treatment of the script. So It's not quite, you know, find a science fiction masterpiece. It's find a absolute on fire genius like Richard Matheson, more to the point. But that sort of Twilight Zone sensibility of the normal butt twist is absolutely, you know, it's what the 1950s are building science fiction out into in a lot of ways. And it's presenting in even in straight up, you know, prose science fiction. A lot more of it is taking place on Earth and taking place in seemingly normal circumstances, but one weird thing happens. Right. The theme of both of these films we talked about so far is normality rises up to kill you. Mm -hmm. Or normality is proven to be unnormal and then kills you or, you know, whichever. But, But that sensibility, that tone, you know, flows into print science fiction starting around the 40s and then becomes very dominant or a dominant strain in the 50s. And it's only much later that you get back to, you know, spaceships and ray guns in science fiction that a lot of the the, the really good writers, not just Matheson, but Frederick Brown and uh, uh, Henry Kuttner, lots of other writers are working from that, you know, normal, but one but what? And the but what is the science fiction half of it over and above the fact that it's also was on our horror essentials list for a reason, because it's super scary. Even if you are a cat lover like myself, you do not relish the notion of being the size of a mouse, <laughs> because I don't think there's any question what Virgil would do if he saw me running around the size of a mouse. And I feel like that sort of alien world exists all around us is a, a fundamentally science fictional realization as well as a fundamentally horror one. An example of the weird coming to Earth and crashing into it and requiring a science hero to fight it uh, brings us to Quatermass 2, uh, which is the first sequel on our list, also known as Enemy from Space. This also has Brian Don Levy in it. We talked about uh, Quatermass earlier in the Quatermass experiment. And this one can owes something of a debt to color out of space. Yeah, in that it is a bunch of meteorites that fall to Earth and uh, bring a weird gas with them. In this particular case, the weird gas sort of suborns people into becoming servants to the aliens. And in the exciting twist of Quatermass 2, the government is suborned into becoming the servants of the aliens. So there's a secret project for the aliens being built out in Britain uh, and again, if you are looking for the bones of Doctor Who, Quatermass 2 is as bony a Doctor Who as you're going to get because there's a, a complex, there's people who are running the complex who are in authority. No one seems to know anything or make any intelligent decisions on that level. And our hero, our scientific hero has to use pure reason to defeat them. And that, of course, is the is, is the great ability of Bernard Quatermass. Shot at a futuristic looking industrial space. Right. It's a good scary movie, but it is, this is well over into the science fiction part of that uh, continuum. And because it is about this 
alien contamination. It's, it, you know, what if invasion of the body snatchers, but had a government grant, I guess is the, is the, is the version that Nigel Neal thought of when he did Quatermass 2 for the BBC. Right. And speaking of the normal becoming horrible. And going back to the very beginnings of the genre with the uh, Promethean experiment gone horribly wrong, we come to The Fly by Kurt Neumann from 1958. It stars uh, Vincent Price as someone whose teleportation experiment goes awry and uh, winds up a half-human, half-fly. And you said that Invasion of the Body Snatchers has no camp in it. This has plenty of it, but I think is all the more horrible for it. And like I said, is uh, central to the very first original science fiction story. Well, one of the one of the things that The Fly has that Body Snatchers doesn't is Vincent Price, obviously. And so if you have Vincent Price and you can do camp, go ahead. Help because, me! Help because me! Price will use the camp to approach the human in a way that is harder to do for, A, other actors, but B, it doesn't turn into a joke entirely with him. There's that, you know, tragic core of his, of his scientist character remains because price is just that good and right. so the, and that's the shakespearean in him right and, and so you, you when you lean into the camp in something like the fly you're also leaning into the relatable whereas it's, it's not a monster origin movie it's not he turns into a fly man and goes out and eats people it's not frankenstein it is a human tragedy it's a faustian tragedy in which he's you know it touched the science wrong and bad things happen. And his pathos is, you know, a big part of the message. It's part of the, the cautionary tale of, I guess, don't build a teleporter. Or if you do, you know, have, have a, a better sanitary security system, which I guess is something scientists could still learn even today. Right. So let's wrap up the fifties, not with an essential, but a, a first, a precursor or something that I think we need to note. Uh, this is a big studio production, one that they found the subject matter very difficult to promote. Because it's an adaptation <laughs> for some of reason. Neville Shute's novel On the Beach, which is basically about World War III has happened, the bombs are about to drop, it's the end of the world, and how do people emote about that? It has Fred Astaire, Gregory Peck, Ava Gardner, Anthony Perkins. It's by Stanley Kramer, the uh, very sort of four-square, socially conscious uh, director of the period. I don't think it holds up that well, but it's the the first nuclear doomsday movie really yeah unless you sort of count things to come but yes it's the first explicitly nuclear doomsday movie and it is as you suggest preachier than it is good and again gregory peck is you know your guy if you want to deliver liberal sententiousness he will deliver it and it has a lot of you know moving performances in the moment and of course it's about a you know, it, because it gets to play with that sort of civilizational destruction, there's, there's a lot of, um, of good touches in it. But I think that fundamentally it's a little slow as well as being a little preachy in my personal opinion. Right. So that finishes up the fifties. So, uh, therefore a great uh, moment to uh, finish up this segment and we'll uh, be back next week and start to head into the sixties and see what they have to offer science fiction. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government 
to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X in Delta Green, the conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green source book with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a forward by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlatha Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. It's time once more to wend our way up the creepity cobweb stairs where, oh wait, there's a whole bunch of people standing admiringly around the painting of the fire salamander, because this turns out we're also in the culture hut. Because uh, let's head on in to talk to the consulting occultist at the behest of beloved backer Jake Moss, who says, Eve's climb, the combination of judoka, mystic, Rosicrucian, sorry, Ken, levitationist, prankster, and performance artist, maybe these are redundant, and color trademarkist are irresistible. What would you do with him in an RPG? So, our main challenge is going to be uh, that most of the stuff he does is in the 50s, which we don't yeah. have a game to put him in. Right. So we'll have to put him in a one-shot. But other than that, he is sort of a fascinating bridge character between the avant-garde of Dada and Surrealism and then Modernism. And uh, he was born to artist parents and, as Jake mentioned, was also... A, a judo master, but it turns out a disappointed judo master eventually. Yeah, he uh, went to school at the Ecole Nationale de Langue Orientale, which I assume is where he ran into Japanese martial arts. This is in, around 1946, begins practicing judo. This is also when he gets into trouble with the Rosicrucians in the sense that he reads Max Heindel's The Rosicrucian Cosmo Conception. And if you imagine a Rosicrucian text that is even more fuzzy-minded than a regular Rosicrucian text. Uh, Max Heindel was also very much influenced by Rudolf Steiner's Anthroposophy, but believed that Anthroposophy was not good for America, that America was too practical for soft-headed German Anthroposophy. I think so that's correct. <laughs> it needs, well, it's mostly true, but he definitely dialed in on what American Rosicrucianism needed I mean, to be. I, I, would, I guess I would say the American soft-headedness is of a different flavor. Right, it, Yes, and, and specifically, it's Southern Californian Rosicrucianism, which Max Heindel is part of the founding movement of. Anyhow, Yves Klein, who seems to be just looking for anything that isn't French right around now, gets into basically this sort of American hippy-dippy Rosicrucianism, goes Except to Japan. in the early 50s. Right, yeah. Goes to Japan and practices judo so well that he becomes the first European Yodan, or fourth Dan Black Belt, he gets into Zen while he's there, which is, I suppose, you know, Rosicrucian is your gateway drug to right. westernized Zen Buddhism. But then when he returns, something super French happens to him. Yep. Which is that the French Judo Association says, we do not accept the credentials of someone who goes to Japan to learn Judo and gets the Yodan and Fourth Dan Black Belt. And that 
basically sours him on martial arts and he decides, ah, to heck with it. I'm going into the family business. I'm going to be an artist instead. A a lesser man would have been soured on France by that, by the way, but not our boy Eves. (laughs) So he gets into art, as you say. The art that he begins to paint is, I I think he begins with a little bit of sort of more representational or basic sort of abstract art, but then rapidly realizes that what he's more interested in is the response of the viewer. And that's why he begins painting monochromes. So he paints paintings that are all one color and he thinks this is going to be great. I'll hang my paintings of all one color and people will be uh, amazed. And he hung a show and people went and said, Oh, we have to trail all the colors. It's, it's like a, a, a trail of colors. And he says, no, you've missed my point. So I'm only going to do blue. That's the only color I'm going to do. So in 1957, he develops a kind of blue called international climb blue, which is the ultramarine pigment, which began as powdered lapis lazuli. I don't know what it's from now. Maybe it still is. Uh, and then you suspend it in polyvinyl acetate. So it still glows and is super bluey instead of being mushed down by the linseed oil, which is what you would get if you made an oil paint of it. An international climb blue takes the world by storm. I, I, I think it is. Super success. The Blue Man Group, that's the blue they are, is international right. climate. It's the color of modernism. Exactly. And that becomes a big thing. People love the blue art. Klein is happy because they're responding to the individual piece, even though there's they, they're getting nothing from it. It's all stuff that they're bringing to it. He well, loves that. that color field painting, though, yeah. the one caveat we have to introduce here is that it's about seeing the work in person because there are gradations mm-hmm. of blue in it just as in rothko's there are gradations of white and in rothko's case there are surface elements and i'm sort of arguing outside of my own taste here but in part that's because you can't experience these works except as physical objects that you are in proximity right. to and 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 it's the and it's the size and the ratios that are also a big part of the blue right it has to be bigger or smaller taller or squatter. And he says any individual art lover will respond to one of these blue pieces. And there will be no reason that they love that instead of the other blue pieces. And that no reason is the core of my art. And a lot of it is, as you say, tiny gradations, but I think a lot of that is just the technical, you know, it's hard to paint a monochrome. And then the other part is that he hangs them in these different ways, but he then moves from your response to no information to your response to nothing when he displays literally nothing in an art project called La Vide in 1958, The Void. Right. This is about the time that he is meeting another artist named Rotro. Uh, he meets her in Nice. She is the au pair for his neighbor, who's also another artist named Arman or Artan, I forget which. And he marries her in 1962, but they're, they're carrying on company together. And then uh, I guess on that same trip home, mom says, why are you being a Rosicrucian? You're embarrassing everyone. Right. So his art speak is marred by this weird, mystical hippie nonsense. Hippie nonsense. And so uh, she gives him a copy of a book called air and dreams by a French critic called Gaston Bachelard. And he gives Klein the same thoughts and ideology, but with a pedigree that is acceptable to French art snobs. And so cites the symbolists and surrealists, Stéphane Mallarmé, Samuel Coleridge, and Paul Eluard. But the thing is, is that they were drawing on all of these same ideas that they were influenced, perhaps with a degree of separation or two, by theosophy as well. And the surrealists, like Klein, thought that they would 
create a psychic transformation that would alter the world through art. And so all this does is disguise the theosophy behind those names, which were, who were also influenced by it. So, I mean, just to point out, Coleridge is pre-theosophy, and he thought of all that in Christian terms, not theosophical terms, but we can right. talk about Coleridge another day. Anyway, he is still experimenting with the process of art, and he comes up with something called anthropometry to separate the artist even further from his creation, in which naked models, including his fiancée, Rotro, smear the paint on the canvas with their bodies while he stands there and says, smear more, and then things like that. And move over there. Mm -hmm. uh, he also begins painting things like the Venus de Milo, not the actual Venus de Milo, but a plaster cast of the Venus de Milo blue in his international client blue to day tour in classical art and demonstrate that the, uh, the blue is the response and that uh, our learned response to things like the wing victory of Samothrace don't matter. Right. And then he also begins to adjust sculptures, his own and others with flame. He uses Bunsen burners to sort of burn weird patterns into the canvas. And he also uses flamethrowers to take edges off sculptures at quasi-random, right? Right. So he's getting very Duchampy here to name yeah. another surrealist. In, in my favorite bit of his ready-mades or, or automatic art, he drives around with a canvas, uh, a wet canvas with the paint still wet on the roof of his car in a rainstorm so that the rain will actually be his painter, right? He uses the rain as his paintbrush. I think that's very cool, frankly. And then... He continues the void. He figures out a way to market the void because, you know, you can take the boy out of American Rosicrucianism, but you can't take the American Rosicrucianism out of a boy. And he begins to sell empty spaces in Paris for gold. He then turns the gold back into art. But the larger point is he's now marketing the void, which is the next level. And he does a famous photograph around this time called Leap Into the Void which involves him seemingly leaping out of a window and he just removes the friends down below with the trampoline. And it is his statement against NASA. He says, how dare you leap into the void in a non-artistic way, NASA? Yeah. So he, he was very accomplished at the media manipulation side oh, yeah. of performance art and, and installation art and, and definitely a precursor to Warhol in that way. That uh, Right. He is, he is sort of the, the linchpin between Duchamp and the pop artists and the performance artists that blow up in the late 60s. Right. In particular, of course, anthropometry, the women wearing only blue body paint smushing up against canvases, was a huge cultural deal that people were shocked and titillated by. Mm -hmm. It appears in the epical 1962 exploitation documentary Mondo Cane, an Italian film that is an anthology film just of weird, freakish things all around the world that are supposed to make you drop your jaw and cluck your tongue. The segment on Klein is very respectful and very attractively posed. He's restaging anthropometry, and there's also like a string section lined up against the wall, and it's very artfully shot. But that, I think, became synonymous with modernism in a way that Klein is not so well remembered today, but at the time he was the modernist. He was the face of it. Yeah. yeah. And he visited America in 1961. He visited New York city where for the first time in his career, he sold nothing, which is a facer, I guess, but that, you know, nothing loath. He continues to Los Angeles has another gallery show. There visits death Valley and Phoenix falls in love with the Southwest just as a as a canvas, I guess, that, again, the notion of the canvas that is there and you react to it is, you know, him and John Ford, there's our connection, Robin. Mondo Kane, like I said, uh, like you said, happens in 1962. And in fact, 
he suffers a heart attack while watching Mondo Kane in Paris and then uh, has some more heart attacks and dies of the last one of those later that year. And uh, Robin, your theory is that it's because he's popping amphetamines. Right. Well, it's not, not my theory, but right. yes, well, it's- you, you join with the theory of, I assume the French medical examiner. Yeah. It was likely it's of course he's passed away very young. And so bringing this into our various mythologies, the obvious thing here is to look at the link between dream hounds of Paris and fall of Delta green and I've always had the notion that pop art revives activity in the dreamlands after it's been a sort of a, a low ebb for uh, several decades, which parallels the period, the post-war period, when surrealism becomes old hat and in, indeed the, the abstract expressionism of, of Pollock and the other New York artists who are only interested in form, not in meaning, sort of takes over. And Klein is an interesting sort of bridge figure because he's working in that vein of things that are not pictorial, but he's still got all of this mystical meaning in him, his surrealist desire to transform the world, and his obvious influence from Duchamp and also the hucksterism of Dali mm-hmm. are coming through as well. And so, presumably, if you are going to the dreamlands anywhere between, you know, 45 and, you know, say 58, it's a blasted, empty mess. There's surreal tumbleweeds. There's nothing much there. It's all kind of died off. It's hard to get there. But maybe if you're going there in 58 or 59, you start to see just all of these blue panels beginning to appear and the blue panels, you know, become more numerous. And it's when pop art takes over from Klein that the blue panels start to uh, change into other things. So it might still be fall of Delta green times, but you will be finding relics of Klein and what he set in motion in reviving the dreamlands as your uh, Delta green agents have to go there and figure out why they're suddenly active again and changing and, and mutating and becoming more Rosicrucian and, you know, blue secret masters, a, a group of blue men even mm, perhaps right. are roaming around in there. Fall of Delta Green does begin in the 60s, so that ties to the very tail end of Eves Klein's life, and he was against NASA, which makes him a national security threat to a certain breed of Delta Green. So if he is either being, you know, manipulated by Rosicrucian blue men from, you know, some other time sphere, I believe there is a, an intelligent shade of blue lurking around somewhere in the mythos. There's certainly intelligent shades of violet lurking around in the mythos. I feel like you could have Klein or a Klein Mank be the the doorway that is, as you say, opening the dreamlands, but he's also opening up the rest of the world to this sort of entirely subjective madness, the notion that only what is happening in my head matters in art. And that has, I think, obvious mythos tie-ins over and above any weirdness he might or might not have gotten up to with his uh, Rosicrucian fun, right? Right. And if he's selling the void, if he's selling literal nothing, mm-hmm. uh, maybe he's selling bits of Yogg-Sothoth. Or, or Azathoth, yeah. Uh, Azathoth. Or even if he is not doing it overtly, he's got this sort of automatism that he's, you know, carried on from both Rosicrucianism and Surrealism. Maybe Yogg-Sothoth or whatever is sort of pushing through him. I mean, Cthulhu, as we know, his dreams affect artists first. So Eves Klein, maybe when he was in Japan, he started having some Cthulhu dreams. And when he comes back, he's trying to paint the abjection of human perception. And that's why he's trying to do his monochromes and his blue. And then he starts doing the nothing as he's saying, how do you get 
Cthulhu out of your head. If Cthulhu is the source of all knowledge, maybe having nothing coming in is the way to, to fix it. And so maybe his void, he thinks is an anti-Cthulhu measure, but of course, it's also just another doorway for Azatha. Right. Or you could be completely unaware because even, you know, if you're selling a bunch of nothing, mm-hmm. who's in that nothing? Well, we, we've already answered that question. Right. Exactly. So I think we now need to have this podcast, this episode turn into nothing, but there'll be something for you to listen to a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast blue, vivid, but not sad, alongside such modernist backers as... Michael Kuehl. Ian Carlson. James Candelino. Jesse Lowe. And Dreaming Johnny. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest design, Bring Me the Incompetent Laggard File. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>